Hey there, this is Brian. I'm the host of the Engaging Missions show. If you've found this show for the first time, I did want to take a second to let you know that this show is not currently in production. You're certainly welcome to check out all of the archives, but we don't have new episodes coming out at the moment. However, I did want to take a second to highlight one of the sponsors that sponsored the show a while ago. They're not currently sponsoring the show, but if you're looking for a place to invest in the kingdom, I'd recommend checking out Mega Voice Audio Bibles. You can find them at megavoice.com, or you'll find a link in the show notes. And I would encourage you to just check that out and see if maybe that's a fit for your giving. There's no compensation here or anything like that. I just wanted to highlight them. And with that, I'll get you back into the regular program. This is the Engaging Missions Show, episode 250. This week, we're talking with Steve Sims about how the church can be a prophetic voice for racial and cultural reconciliation. I believe race is really a myth, that there's no such thing as race. Biblically, there's the human race. Welcome to the Engaging Missions Show, where we are bringing missions home. Here's your host, Brian Ensminger. Thanks so much for stopping by, and welcome to the show. We want to see at least a thousand people equipped, challenged, and inspired by God's stories every month. And I have a few ways that I'm going to ask you to join me with this after our interview. Today we have with us Steve Sims. He was with us back in episode 217, where we talked about Ecclesia and some of his experiences with a non-traditional church format within the Salvation Army. Today, however, we're going to be talking more about his new book, Off the Racetrack, From Colorblind to Color Kind. And I think that this is a really valuable and timely conversation. We're definitely going to be hitting on some of the overarching things that relate to race and culture, but our goal here is really to make this practical for those who are involved in church leadership and in church planting, and also to bring some perspective for those who are preparing or involved in cross-cultural ministry. I'm going to go ahead and recommend right now that you check out his book, Off the Racetrack. You're going to find that linked up in the show notes so that you can check that out. I think that you'll find some real value in the stories that he shares. One of the things we talked about as we were chatting before we hit record is this can be a little bit of a divisive topic, and it might not even seem particularly relevant to people who are involved in church leadership, but I think it's incredibly important for us to talk about that. As you think about the book that you've written and the the transformation that you hope to see maybe in the next 15 or 20 years, what would you hope to see in the church and in the culture at large because of what you've done? I would love to see reconciliation among people. The barriers go down. You know, one of the classic scriptures in Ephesians is that the wall of partition between Jews and Gentiles was torn down by Christ. But I believe that isn't just between Jews and Gentiles, but it's all the walls that we put up for ethnicity and culture and and race. And so I would like to see people kind of get a little bit spiritually infected with a desire to reach out and be kind. And the phrase color kind could also be ethnic kind, Mm. being kind to people who are different. And really, I believe that's how Christianity spread in the very beginning is because there's a real strong witness for Christ when Christians are one. When we love people, the world says we shouldn't love. That's a testimony 
to Jesus. Mm. So I'd like to kind of key in on that because you did mention color kind, and that's one of the, the focuses of your group. And speaking transparently, I don't know that I properly understand what it means to be color kind instead of colorblind. Can you build on that and help us understand what you mean when you say that? Yeah, and, and you know, for people that are are going into missions and doing mission work, instead of color, we could think of culture, mm. culture blind. And, you know, it's easy for missionaries to go into a different culture and be culture blind to that culture. They, they're coming in to share, you know, Christ and yet Christ wants to work with people where they are. He wants to transform them. So it's important to recognize people's traditions, their 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 lifestyle, their habits, the various aspects of their culture, and to be aware of it. And in the United States, with the race issue, white people tend to like take what Dr. Martin Luther King said, that we don't judge, that his children not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And it, I used to do that as a white person think, well, I just don't see color. But the reality is you do see color. I see color. If a person, a black person and a white person are walking down the street, I recognize that they're not the same color. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But then by color kind or culture kind, I mean to go to cross lines, to find if you see someone who looks different than you racially or who is dressed different with a garb that you're not familiar with, instead of just not seeing them, recognize, wow, there's an, a person that that has a different culture, different ethnicity. I would like to be nice to them, open the door for them, go up and say, hey, how are you? Where are you from? You know, and just reaching out is is really what I'm referring to is kindness. Yeah, I, I like that. And I'm wondering, you know, as a, as a person, if we take that, what your comment was at face value and say, okay, I'm going to intentionally open the door. I'm going to intentionally do some things. Some might see that kind of thing as disingenuous. What would you share with a person who's thinking, I'd like to reach out, but I'm not sure how it's going to be perceived? Well, you'll never know until you take that first step. And the first step in anything is often disingenuous. If I've got to mow my yard, sometimes when I'm getting my lawnmower out, I'm disingenuous. I'm not doing it reluctantly. I'm just being obedient. But once I get out and start mowing, I get into it. Mm. And you know, I start enjoying it. And I find the same thing in interacting with people of a different race or ethnicity. At first, I may be a little shy. But once I say hello and start interacting, it's there, there's a heart connection. And it becomes genuous. So if you wait until you feel a great love for that person, you may never take that action. But if you go ahead and take the action, the sincerity will follow as you open your heart to them and them to you. That's good. And, and, you know, as I was thinking about this conversation, preparing, you know, one of the things that stood out to me as a, a question is you and I are two white guys. We're both middle-aged or slightly over middle-aged Um, Be careful. (laughs) I'm middle-aged-ish, and I I would assume you're about the same age, maybe a little bit older, maybe a little bit younger. How, 
how important and how appropriate it is for you and I to be having this conversation? Oh, I think it's very appropriate. I think it's a falsehood that you have to be something to understand it. You know, the classic example is the male doctor who works with mothers giving birth. Mm. What's the proper name? I'm drawing a blank. The gynecologist. Okay, yeah. You know, he's not a woman. Often many gynecologists are men, but they still can understand. I think our culture almost has a myth that you can't understand something that you aren't. And, you know, when you start, I've hung out with Hispanics and I've learned a lot about Hispanic culture with African-Americans, with Asians, with the Kurdish family my wife and I got to know. And it was, it was delightful. And, you know, you don't have to be something to understand it. Yeah. And let's, let's kind of dig in there a little bit, because I think having read your book and knowing a little bit about your history, I think that your position to speak in some really unique ways. As I think about church planters, particularly in the U.S., a lot of times we have people who were raised in the city but end up being called to the suburbs or to rural areas or vice versa. And in that, not only is there the potential for a difference in the pace of the culture, but also the ethnic mix of the culture. You spent a good bit of your time working across cultures. What would you share with us as we're entering a new place where we don't necessarily understand the culture? How, how would we approach that? I think the first step is, is, you know, pray and ask God to give you a heart for people that looks at beyond the surface of the culture and wants to get to know them as people. And God will answer that prayer and then take a first step, you know, just, you know, and, and we, even if you're, you know, if you're a church planner or a missionary in another country, you're going to meet people at the supermarket. Mm-hmm. You're going to meet people, you know, walking down the street, some places where people are going, there are a lot of pedestrians and, you know, and just start being friendly. And it's basically the human race. I believe race is really a myth that there's no such thing as race. Biblically, there's the human race. And it says we're all of one blood and, you know, we're all family. So race is pretty much a myth. And we let the myth intimidate us. Oh, I don't know. Kind of what you said, like, how can two white guys talk about interacting with black people or, you know, well, they're just people. When you connect with people on a heart level, we're all the same. I've in addition to uh, working around African-Americans a lot in the United States and worked for, for a while as a short-term missionary in India and lived there for three months, completely surrounded by the culture as the only Caucasian there. And I found they received me and I received them. And I mean, it was, they're just people, you know, mm. we're all just people and it overcomes the fear of you know, if we go in making a big deal, all you're so different, but at the heart level, you know, habits, the way you cook your food, some of the lingo you use, that all may be different. But on a heart level, we all want our kids to grow up healthy and we we want to be kind to our friends and people are basically the same. Yeah. 
we've talked a little bit about some of the the what and the why, but as I'm thinking about it, we never really laid a strong foundation for your background, your history. And as I was reading your book, Off the Racetrack, you talked quite a bit about some of your formative experiences, having grown up being essentially colorblind, if you will. And then you had some experiences in, I think, around college age where you began interacting in some different ways. And I'm wondering, could you share that story of how you began interacting on a much more personal level and became much more aware of what was going on? Yeah, I think I'm a little older than you, and I grew (laughs) up tail end of segregation in the South, in Arkansas and Tennessee. I went through high school really without going to an integrated school. There were a handful of blacks in my high school, but just out of a thousand students, there might have been six. So, you know, it wasn't much. So I was naive, you know, under segregation, the the blacks were kept separate from the whites. And, you know, I, I didn't have racist feelings, but I just was pretty much unaware of blacks. I mean, you know, they and so in college, I was recruited to sell books door to door for a summer job, which I did three years. And the books that I sold were Ebony's Pictorial History of Black America. So I mm-hmm. sold black history books door to door for three summers. And, you know, you don't just knock on anybody's door to do that. You know, so we targeted African-American neighborhoods. And so I would spend 12 hours a day. We work six days a week just knocking on doors of African-Americans and saying, hi, I'm Steve, and I'm here to talk to you about this new book series from Ebony and start talking about it and show it to them. And they, it was delightful. At first, I was a little nervous, but as I started doing that, I had so many, I was so well received, just warmly embraced by people. And after doing that a few weeks, I felt like I was black because I'd see a white person in the neighborhood and think, well, what's he doing here? (laughs) So just by hanging out with people, it gave me a whole different perspective that I could have never learned in a book or an academic study. And you you say that, that it gave you a different perspective than you could have gotten from a book. But as I read through your book, there were, there, there's clearly also been a certain amount of academic learning and even some experiences that you sought out. And I'm thinking these kinds of experiences and this kind of research that you've done could be really useful for someone who's stepping into a culture that they don't understand, whether it's in their home country or not. So I'm wondering, could you share a little bit about how you pursued knowledge and understanding? Yeah, you know, as I got to know African-Americans, those three summers selling books, and and the book was history, so I started reading the books, you know, that I was selling, and it created a real interest in, in black history. And so over the over decades, I've read anything and everything I can find about black history. And some of it is is, is terribly sad. Mm. You know, the history of slavery and slavery was not kind. It was extremely cruel and learned the details. But the some of it was very inspiring how 
African-Americans survived under slavery and how slaves would risk everything to run away and then write a book about it, this call a slave narrative. There are over 200 full-length books that were written by American runaway slaves. And I've read not the 200, but I've read quite you know several of them. And it's amazing you know, what the, uh, the, they went through. And it, it's kind of academic, you know, because I learned. But even more for me, it touches my heart. You know, the cruelty that was done to blacks touches my heart. Hmm. But the courageous persistence to find a way to hope, Negro spirituals, African-Americans under slavery were very spiritual and very much in love with Jesus. I mean, he's all they had. And so, you know, I find that very inspiring when I read Black history. Yeah. I would imagine there are probably also some people listening who would think it wasn't my generation. I wasn't involved in that. Maybe like me, maybe they grew up in a state that wasn't even a state at the time when most of this stuff was happening. And there could be the the desire perhaps to gloss over or to say, well, it doesn't really matter. How important is it as church leaders, as church planters, as people in the marketplace who really want to show God's love to people that we understand as best we can the history that's involved? It's, I think, vital. And even for missionaries that go from one nation to another, you know, historically, not only was the Western culture cruel to African-Americans and Native Americans in, in the United States. Colonialism, we have a legacy of colonialism where European and America and European nations took entire countries captives and made them our colonies and took away their government. And, you know, when you go in as a missionary, maybe that was you know, decades ago, maybe that country's been independent for a hundred years, but there's still the legacy of, in many countries, of the Western abuse of the people and their culture. And so to truly connect with them, I think we need to, you know, corporate repentance and the humility that I'm not coming in here as the great hope. I'm coming in here broken. And I want to share in your life. And because this is important to you, it should be important to me. I mean, how can we reach people if the things that are important to them aren't important to us? Yeah. Obviously, we can't fix the past. The past is done. What can we do? Yeah, you know, the past is done. And a lot of these colonialism and slavery, nobody alive today had anything to do with. You know, it took place 100 years ago or more. And so we didn't, but our nation did. And, you know, as America, I mean, we're both Americans. Most people in other nations, we take pride in the accomplishments of our nation. Hmm. You know, the Brits take pride in what they've done, the Australians, the Germans, and the good things. And if we're going to do that, even though maybe it was 100 years ago, we still look back and take pride in the good things. And to me, that's always seemed unfair. If we're going to own and and feel good about the good things that our nation did, we ought to be consistent and own up to the bad things 
that our nation and our culture have done. And I think when people see that humility, it opens their heart to receive us and to receive the gospel and become in Jesus' name. Yeah. I'm thinking about the the pastor right now that is looking out at a congregation. And, you know, it's been said that the 10 a.m., I'm, I'm messing up the quote, but basically Sunday morning is the most segregated hour of the week, Sunday morning at church. And maybe they're looking at their congregation and going, you know what, I don't see the level of diversity that I would expect to see as I read, say, the book of Revelation that talks about every nation, tribe, and tongue. What yeah. would you share with that pastor if you were able to sit down with him and he's going, this is what I see, but it doesn't line up with Scripture? Yeah, I was. I was a pastor in Cumberland Presbyterian Church, which was all white. And I went knocking on doors like I had sold books. I went in black neighborhoods knocking on doors and inviting African-Americans to the church. And I would get them to visit sometimes, but they wouldn't stay. Mm. And I would bring in guest speakers that were black. And then one day the Holy Spirit told me to join a black denomination. And so for three years, my wife and I were pastors and church planners in the Church of God in Christ, which is, they call it Kojic. It's the second largest African-American denomination in the United States. And, you know, sometimes we need to be the one to go out and connect with people on their turf instead of saying, you come to our turf. And then if we do invite people of different ethnicity and race into our church, we need to make them equal and give them and be intentional that the leadership looks like the congregation. If you have all white leadership, it's hard to have a diverse congregation. It, it can be done, but it's better to raise up the leaders. And then on the mission field, you know, too oftentimes missionaries have gone in and help the leadership positions instead of turning it over to the locals and in training the locals to lead. You know, the, the headquarters is still in the United States or whatever country the missionary comes from instead of, you know, we're, we're to come alongside and enable them of what different people to step into leadership. And that can't, shouldn't be race-based. It should be diverse. Say more about that diversity not being just race-based. What do you mean by that? Well, diversity, you know, if you take white people, you white people are very diverse. You know, look, look at Europe, all the different languages that are spoken. Mm. You know, Africans are very diverse. When you go all across Africa and India, all sorts of different cultures. So the world has got so many different you know, ethnic or cultural groups. And I think I mentioned earlier, actually, the concept of race is not biblical. But, you know, it's, it's I believe in my research, race came into being when the first Europeans started bringing slaves, Africans to North and South America in bondage to be sold into slavery. And these people have claimed they were Christian, and here they were human trafficking. So how can I buy people unless there's something wrong with the people? 
And so they came up with the idea, well, their skin's darker. They're a different type of people than we are. They're not fully human. And if you can justify that, and they even justified it with Scripture, the curse of Ham, which says that God cursed Ham and made him a servant. But that's not accurate if you read that Scripture. Noah Spoke said that his grandson, Ham's son, Canaan, was cursed. But I believe that the concept of race was developed to protect the conscience of the Europeans who were enslaving Africans. Yeah, I I, I appreciate you sharing that. I, I remember I had another guest on the show, Lisa Sharon Harper, who talked, I think, a little bit about the difference between race and ethnicity. And that's that's something that's a little bit tough sometimes to get our, our heads around. So I appreciate you putting a little bit more flesh on that one. As I think about the the church and what I read in Revelation and in some of the Gospels talking about the church and how God sees the bride of Christ, every nation, tribe, and tongue, all, you know, everyone. On one level, it's not possible in a single local congregation, whatever size that congregation is, to really fully represent every nation, tribe, and tongue. But do you have, from your experience, your research, your time in the Word, do you have a picture in your mind of what a a good level of diversity would look like? You know, I really don't. I don't think there's a formula. I think it's more a matter of the heart. Hmm. And instead of targeting, like like you said, if 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 the city you're in is twenty percent black and eighty percent white, and you know a few, you don't necessarily try to match the population, but just that when people come in, that they're welcome, and that we pursue people who are different. I think too oftentimes the church growth movement, you know, that was popular a decade or two ago, mm-hmm. was saying churches should not be diverse and should target one race or one ethnic group. But Jesus went after everybody, you know, and, and I think it was the diversity of the New Testament church that was one of its strongest suits is one of the reasons people would say, look how they love one another. Well, if they were all white guys, they'd say, well, no wonder they love each other. Look, they're all the same. But at Antioch, when the elders were point, you know, pointed Barnabas and Saul, there was a guy who had been a member of Herod's household, and there was Niger, who that means black. There was diversity in the leadership in Antioch, mm-hmm. and so I don't know that it meant a particular percentage, but you know, it's I believe diversity is important, not necessarily a certain you know percent. Yeah, that, that that's good, and I, I appreciate you pointing that out because I think, at least as an American, I think that we generally are looking for a formula, something to say you're doing this right, or this is good enough, or or something like that. And I don't necessarily think that's how God operates. So I, I appreciate your perspective on that. We've we've talked a little bit about how. You spent some time in the Presbyterian denomination trying to get to a level of diversity across the community that you were in. We've talked about how you were part of the Church of God in Christ. I think that, if I remember right from your book, you also 
pastored, planted and pastored another multiracial church, if I've got these correct in, in my head. I'm wondering, as you think about your experience from planting and pastoring a multiracial church, multi, uh, a diverse church, let's just call it diverse for, the, for this conversation, what can we learn from your experience in that time? That's a very good question. Doing church with a diverse group taught me that people are people, and there's a beauty in in seeing Christ's love where it's unexpected. You know, if a church is all black or all white, it's neat. I've been to a lot of all-black churches. Of course, when I go, they're no more all-black for that service. But when I see people loving each other and feel the Spirit moving among a group of people that are similar, it's, 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 it's powerful. But when I go to a group that's really mixed and see blacks and white and Hispanics and Asians together loving each other with heartfelt love you know not just going through the motions and because this is beyond agape is beyond this ethnicity mm-hmm. and agape will melt anybody's hearts it doesn't matter what skin color they are what country they're from when you share agape and show color kindness our cultural kindness, it, it melts hearts. So uh, that, I think that's what I would want people to, to learn is just, it's, it's fun. It, it's the joy of the Lord. The Lord made human skin colors and human diversity, and I believe he delights in it. And I believe he wants you and me to delight in, instead of seeing differences as threatening, to see them as beauty. Wow. As I think about that statement, that wanting to see that beauty, right? For I'm thinking now of the people listening to this show, not just you and me, but everybody who's listening right now. And I'm thinking of, for example, possibly Jacob or possibly Cynthia or a number of other people who listen to the show. Some of them are probably thinking right now, okay, sounds good. Where do I start? Yeah, the place to start is maybe at Taco Bell or at the shoe store or at the grocery or walking in your neighborhood when you see someone of a different race or ethnicity than you. Instead of just looking away, say, hey, how are you? How long have you? Do you live in the neighborhood? I'm Steve. I live over on Blackman Road. Where do you live? And just to intentionally make friends cross the lines. And, you know, just that's where you start. Mm -hmm. And then as far as church, try inviting someone to church with you that looks a little different and or go to church with them. If you find that your neighbor, if your neighbor's Asian and you're not, and where do you go to church? Well, I go to Korean Presbyterian. Well, hey, can can I go one Sunday? You know, I've loved doing that. When I sold books door to door in black neighborhoods, I started every Sunday. I would go to a, a different black church and just I was always so well received, and it was always such a wonderful experience. You know, it's always amazing to me, Brian. People pay big bucks to go to. Europe or to go to South America or to go to Asia, China. Well, we got all all the people here, Mm. you know, now in the United States and the whole world's becoming mixed. And 
you can experience those travel experiences just in your own neighborhood now. My wife got to know a Kurdish family a few years ago, and this was after 9-11, you know, so they weren't the most popular people because, of course, they had nothing to do with it. But this Kurdish family started coming by our house some, and they invited us to eat, and we sat on the floor and ate with them, and we learned their culture, and they, they'd never seen Christmas trees up close. So they, you know, a couple Christmases, we had them over, and they you know, and ask us all sorts of questions about the Christmas tree. And you know, I got to share Christ with them, but that wasn't, we weren't going for the juggler. Mm. We were just loving them. And then opportunities came up and it was fun. I loved learning about Kurdish culture and Kurdish society. And they do eat sitting on the floor. That was a little weird, but it was fun to try. Yeah. My my next question is for that person who's listening right now and they're going, okay, thanks for sharing where I can get started. That's great. But I'm, I'm just one person. There's this voice in their head that's saying, you know what? You're too small. You're not, what, what you do doesn't matter. What would you share with that person? One person can change the world by changing one person. And, you know, it's, after I sold bookstore to door, when my wife and I decided to plan a multiracial church, we just we went to a black neighborhood and I just started hanging out by myself at first. I just walk around the neighborhood. There were some guys that were, you know, drinking kind of look like they might be homeless. Go up and talk to them. And how are you guys? I'm Steve. And uh, about a year later, one of the guys said, when you first started coming around, those guys were, what is this white guy doing here? And what's he wanting? He said, I told him that guy's either from God or he's crazy. <laughs> so, but just one person walking around a neighborhood, and, and if you don't see people, pray for the neighborhood. That makes a difference. Prayer is powerful. Prayer walking is is um, changes the world. And walking up to people and just being nice to people who you know, if you walk up to a, a black guy in a hoodie, and you're a white guy, he's probably going to be quite surprised if you're nice to him, because for some reason. It, there's a stereotype that a, a black guy in a hoodie is not a good guy. But I find I love black guys in hoodies with their pants hanging halfway down. And, you know, even drug dealers. I mean, when I, I've been out walking the streets and uh, say, hey, guys, how are you doing? And they start stuffing their drugs in their pocket. Oh, we're fine. But if you're just nice to people, they're nice back. And that's a wonderful thing. Anytime you start a spark of kindness, you've done something major and if especially when that kindness is toward people who the world doesn't think you should be kind to yeah you you talked about starting with some some level of prayer potentially praying for the neighborhood if you don't see people i'd like to turn the tables now as we begin to draw this to a close this is going to air in a couple of months from when we're recording this and i'm wondering how can we best pray for you I'm in a transition time. There was my wife and I were leading a multiracial church that we'd planted in the Salvation Army. And we were, a new leadership came in and they decided to go a different direction with that ministry. So I'm in between, but by being 
out of that ministry, I was free to write this book. So I guess just prayer. I would love a platform. And thank you for this platform, sharing your podcast and having me as a guest, that the book would make an impact, that I might have a platform and open doors to share the joy of multiracial, diverse mm. ministry and community. So I, that that would be a, a good prayer for my wife as well. The book is really about, in addition to you know, black history and American history and race history, a lot of it is our personal experiences interacting with people mm. and how much fun we had. Can I tell you a real quick story? Yeah, yeah, please do. First time my wife went with me, I had sold books door to door in black neighborhoods. So I was used to knocking on doors and I started knocking on doors in this neighborhood where we were going to plant a church. And one day I said to my wife, now, why don't you come with me? Okay. So we were driving around. She said, well, we can't park here. I don't think the car will be safe. And so, okay, I'll move it. Well, I don't know if we should park here. After about five times, I finally said, we're going to be walking the streets. What difference does it make where our cars park? <laughs> so we started knocking on doors to say, hey, we started a new church down the block. And, and we knocked on this one door and this guy, I said, hi, I'm Steve Sims. And stuck my hand out. And Chris is African-American. American guy and he shook his hand out and shook my hand and my wife said I'm Ernie and he shook her hand and then he said oh I guess I should have told you guys I've been cleaning Chetlins. Well, Chetlins are pig intestines. And he'd been in there, and I was, I'm kind of a germ phobia, and I was going, oh, no. And my wife started telling, oh, you freaked him out. And, and But anyway, out of that, the three of us, this total stranger, this African American, my wife and I, who are white, we were just laughing and immediately just, we, we just stood and had a wonderful time just talking to, you would have thought we'd known each other for, for years. And, and and I didn't, we didn't even know if he was a Christian. But there's the Holy Spirit, when you cross lines with kindness, he connects you with people heart to heart. And that's a wonderful thing to experience. Yeah, that's great. Thanks for sharing that. For, for those that are listening, I would like to encourage you to go ahead and pause the recording right now and pray for Steve. Pray for God to open up the appropriate platform for him, whatever that looks like. And for Steve's heart for reconciliation, for him to be able to see the fruit of that, and not just fruit for a minute, but fruit that lasts and fruit that transforms culture and fruit that transforms lives for God's glory in the advancement of his kingdom. Not because we want to see that, but because we want to see what God wants to see. Also, I would like to recommend that you go ahead and pick up his book, Off the Racetrack. We'll have that linked up in the show notes. If you have any interest in learning more about Steve's story and some of the, the incredible and some of the rather interesting things that happened in their lives, as well as a really strong understanding of some of the history, a really good summary, some inspiration about what this is about, I'd recommend that you pick that book up. It's got a lot in it, and I think it's worth our time to, to take that and to read it. Steve, I want to say thank you so much for coming back on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. I mentioned at the beginning that I am looking for an opportunity for you to partner with me, and I want to take just a couple of minutes, really, to share what's going on. So here's, here's the vision. 
I want to see this show, the Engaging Missions show, providing encouragement, insight, and challenging up to, well, actually challenging a thousand people per month or more. And I'm going to ask for you to partner with me in four specific ways. If you've been listening to the show for a while, if you've found it valuable, if you believe that this show could be valuable for other people, I'm going to ask you to partner with me in four specific ways. First, I'm going to ask you to hold me accountable to make a show that you think is worth getting out to a thousand people or more every month. And if you hear the show falling short, I'm going to want you to let me know. Send that to feedback at engagingmissions.com. Of course, if you hear me also getting something right, I would love to hear that as well because encouragement is always good. But I'm going to ask you to hold me accountable. And we're going to have a little bit more about accountability in just a minute. Number two, I'm going to ask you to become an Engaging Missions evangelist. I'm going to ask you to listen to the episodes and think of people that you know who you think would benefit specifically from what the guests are talking about that week and take the time to share it with them. Two or three guests would be great. I'm not necessarily looking for email blasts, although I appreciate those. I'm really looking for that deep connection where you know a person or a couple of people who would really benefit from this because what I want is for them to be able to hear whatever it is that you believe God has for them. Number three, and this is the most important one, I'm going to ask you to be an engaging missions prayer warrior. I'm going to ask you to pray for me and my family. I'm going to ask you to pray for our guests. I'm going to ask you to pray for the other couple of people that work with me, Jeff and Gabby, who helped me with the show, and also for our listeners, that they would be able to hear from God, that, that all of that would happen so that God can accomplish whatever it is that he has planned for this. And number four, I'm going to ask you to prayerfully consider partnering financially at a level of 15 or 25 or perhaps $30 a month. If that's out of, out of the question, of course, every dollar helps. And believe me, this is not all about the money, but there are some financial things going on. It does cost about $300 a month to produce the show with software and production and hosting and all of the things that go into that. And I'm going to ask you to partner with me for that. But the real reason isn't about the money. It's about... Well, Scripture says that where our treasure is, our heart is. And so I'm just going to ask you, if you think the show is valuable, to put a little bit of your treasure there and to invest your heart in the show. Back to accountability. I want to let you know every couple of episodes where we are. So I want to see this show helping a 1,000 people per month. Right now we're seeing about 300 downloads per episode. I would count that as helping about 300 people per month. So we've got a bit to go, and it's not necessarily going to be easy to add 700 listeners per month. That's almost a 200% increase, but I do believe it's possible. And I'm just going to ask you for your help. I'd really like to see us achieve that by the end of April in 2019. And then also in terms of financial partnership, I do have one financial partner. You won't see them on our patron page, but I do have one partner at the level of $15 a month. I'm very appreciative of that. But I'm going to ask you to consider being part of that because it's a little bit off from the $300 per month target. I would also ask that if you're going to partner financially or in prayer or in sharing the show or in holding me accountable, that you'd let me know. Send a note to feedback at engagingmissions.com just to let me know. I'd really appreciate that. And if you are looking to partner financially, visit engagingmissions.com slash patron to find more information about that. That's engagingmissions.com slash patron. Any way that you're able to partner, or even if you're not able to partner, I'm really thankful that you're here. I really appreciate that you've taken the time to be here. I'd like to say one more huge thank you to Steve Sims for being with us, to Jeff and Gabby for the work that they do on the show, and also to you for joining us. 
Show notes are available at engagingmissions.com slash racetrack. That's like his book, Off the Racetrack, engagingmissions.com slash racetrack. Or if you're listening in your favorite podcast app, you've subscribed there, there's a good chance you're just able to tap a link and get right there. Anyway, engagingmissions.com slash racetrack. That's where you're going to find a a link to his book, as well as ways to connect with him and any of the other resources that we talked about. Make sure that you come back in a couple of weeks. We're going to be hearing from a gentleman in Belgium about resting in God's strength and practicing hospitality. This was a really intriguing conversation. I really appreciate it, and I think that you're going to find it valuable as well. If you haven't subscribed to the show already, you can do that by visiting engagingmissions.com slash subscribe so that you never miss an episode. And if you have any feedback or suggestions for the show, please send those to feedback at engagingmissions.com. That's feedback at engagingmissions.com. One more time, really appreciate you being here, and I look forward to connecting in a couple more weeks. <laughs>